This episode is brought to you by Visit Myrtle Beach. You know what's better than getting away to a beach? Getting together at the beach. Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. They've got over 2,000 restaurants, live music playing all day and night, and endless attractions. This place was made for playing hard and beaching easy. Welcome to 60 Miles Where You Belong. The Beach, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Plan your trip at visitmyrtlebeach.com. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Welcome to Talking Gardens with me, Stephanie Mann. My guest this episode is writer Alice Vincent, who started gardening on the balcony of her flat before moving recently to her first garden, which she writes about each month as our columnist on Gardens Illustrated magazine. She's the author of Rootbound and also a new book and podcast called Why Women Grow, for which she spoke to a diverse range of women up and down the country. So Alice, if you could have anything in the world in your fantasy garden, What's the first thing that springs to mind? Currently, it would be a writing studio because that's the one thing I'm really hoping for in my own non-fantastical garden. And in about a week, we'll find out whether we've had very tedious paperwork approval, whether it can go ahead or not. (laughs) Oh, is it planning permission that you're waiting for? Yeah, for, for reasons too boring for the podcast, we have to get planning. And so I'm hoping that in a future self, this won't be completely torturous to listen back to when I I do not have some kind of writing shed. But yes, yeah, it's not, it's actually come from a really pragmatic place, which is that we only have enough space for, for, to write or have an office and also accommodate a small child. Who's on the way, who possibly will be here by the time people are listening to this podcast. (laughs) Potentially, Um, exactly. So, you know, book, writing shed, baby, all at once. March is going to be busy. (laughs) (laughs) And what would your dream writing shed look like? Is it going to be like George Bernard Shaw's famous one that was, you know, on a pivot that he sort of moved around with the sun throughout the day? Nothing is fancy, although I do like that. No, I thinking more Derek Jarman's Prospect Cottage. It'll be sort of, in fact, actually Ali Smith and Sarah Wood, who are both in Why Women Grow, they painted their outdoor building in Prospect Cottage, yellow and black. Prospect Cottage, which is, of course, Derek Jarman's famous garden and cottage on the beach in Dungeness. Correct. Very good editing there. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, I can tell that you keep me on the straight and narrow. Yes, exactly. Now, I think something, I just love plants against black. So all of the the boundaries in my garden in South London, I painted black. It was one of the first things I did. I just think it adds such a structural heft. It's one of the best things you can do for instant impact. So yes, it wouldn't, In the garden, when it comes to structures, I'm quite minimalist. It wouldn't be too fancy. But inside, it will just have lots and lots of bookshelves and lots of... I I do like sort of things around me, like note cards people have sent and pictures and art and a good pen. So, yes, gubbins inside, minimalism outside... So you're quite maximalist in your kind of office space, are you? Mm. Sort of like heaving with 
things in papers. (laughs) It's a representation of my mind. People might be worried. But yes, a happy chaos. I like that. A happy chaos. (laughs) So you have your writing shed, your lovely black writing shed. Mm. Loving that. What else would you have in your dream garden? Is there a particular sort of planting that you Mm. covet that you think, oh, maybe I can't have that now, but if I could in my fantasy garden? Yes, if I could with a team of gardeners and maybe a very (laughs) fancy... Uh, design drawn up by Pete Udoff, uh, that would probably be the one. Oh, lovely. Some nice naturalistic sort of perennials and grasses. Yeah, absolutely. So I first encountered Pete's work before I even knew who he was. In fact, I encountered Pete before I knew who he was. We ended up sitting opposite each other at dinner. And I <laughs> I did not know who he was, but he was very gracious about it. And we've spoken a few si- times since. And There are people screaming I as know. you say that you were sitting across from Pete Adolf at dinner and you didn't know who he was. I know. <laughs> he was lovely, as is um, his wife. who and the, and the pair of them have always worked very closely together, which I think is a really lovely other line to that incredible body of work that they've definitely made together, but it's often his name on it. But yeah, so I encountered the High Line when it was still in its formative stage in around 2010. And I just moved to New York where I was working for a bit. And I I didn't have the plant bit of my brain switched on then. But I remember I've got this incredibly visual memory of the light bouncing off the Hudson River is September colliding with these tall grasses and splintering and the way that sort of that New York crystalline light can do. And it was so beautiful. And I, it felt like I was inside a living thing, which I think his work does. You know, I love the Udolf field down at Hauser and Worth in Somerset. For me, that just... I think it's better actually in October than it is at any other time in the year. But for me, that's that's what heaven looks like. You know, that just dreamy, otherworldly, all stages of life are there. And I do think that whatever sort of garden I have, fantastical or otherwise, it needs to have all stages of life in it. I'm not a perfectionist gardener. I'm I'm excited by the the movement of plants and the growth and the development of them. I think the seasons keep me sane. So I'd never I'd never want anything too perfect. And I think that what Pete does with his designs is inherently embrace change in every way. And so yes, that is that is what it would look like. Very naturalistic, always changing, beautiful, whatever the season and reacting with them. And how does it differ from let's say the planting in your actual garden? <laughs> well, we don't have that much room. I think, you know, for that kind of planting you need space actually to get those huge clouds and waves of perennials especially some of the bigger grasses but also on the matter of grasses um, I believe according to the soil map that I have loam in my garden but it's also less than a mile from the river and so therefore it's just like a lot of city soil it's full of all sorts of junk there's quite a lot of clay in there. It's too heavy, really, for those lovely grasses and things. Maybe with a, maybe with enough time, the soil will improve and so will my gardening prowess. But right now, I'm lacking both. <laughs> so you have a small plot. Yes. 
uh, outside your London flat. Is yes, that right? That's Around right. what size? So actually for London, it's pretty generous. Um, we feel really lucky to have it. It's about seven metres deep by 10 across. So it, it's not a long, skinny garden. It's the other way around. And certainly, yeah, we feel really, really lucky to have it. But especially once you throw things like a writing shed in and somewhere to eat and the ongoing battle over the existence of a lawn, which I would not have. Certainly no lawn in my fantasy garden, but my husband loves a lawn. So, you know, what is it with men with lawns, Stephanie? (laughs) Can we do a podcast on that at some point? I mean, I'd like to say it's that they just like getting out the mower and feeling, you know, capable. Maybe. My husband hates the mower and won't touch it. I'm I'm, the mower. I'm the mower as well. Yeah, what is that? I don't know. Mm, I think there might be a whole other podcast. (laughs) Why men mow? (laughs) Um, Yes, we'll find out. But yes, so... Um, with those things that I, you know, while I, I do sort of sneakily edge away the lawn every time I do it to get more bedding space, there's not really that much room. And we're doing it all on a pretty small budget as well. Like I'm not really at a stage in my life where I can landscape dramatically. So, yeah, yeah, that's what it looks like. I suppose it's it's still quite different to how you started out, isn't it, on your yeah. balcony yeah. of your other flat? Yeah. And how's that transition been from sort of growing in pots on a balcony to actually having a small garden? Yeah, it's um, it's been a ride. And it's been really surprising because before we moved and when people found out that we were having a garden when we were moving, everyone said to me, oh, you must be so excited to have this garden. And I was, but I was also terrified because I'd got, you know, over the course of about five years or so, I'd got quite good at balcony gardening. You know, I knew how to work in a small space. I knew how to get the most from containers. I knew how to plant up. I knew how to do it with really minimal effort. And so I'm also completely untrained horticulturally. And it felt like the world's biggest sense of imposter syndrome and also the absolute worst thing with a garden, which would be completely absent in my fantasy garden, which is this sense of that you have to represent something or be something or show off something in a garden. I, you know, this sense of expectation that people would walk in and, and I still get it a bit now, especially if people, visitors haven't been before or they've maybe seen it on Instagram or whatever, and then they turn up. I feel like I almost have to apologise because often it, it hasn't been very well looked after or it's doing its own thing or I'm leaving it be. And so the first year was very much this sort of maniacal, trying everything there every day, throwing everything in. And we did, we, I did a lot of sort of work to it. And it did look quite good that summer. But what's more surprising has been this stepping back. And that's what I really enjoyed. And it was a real process that I wrote about in Why Women Grow as well. This notion that actually there's so much to to gardening that isn't just doing and that stepping back and that looking and that working with the ground and the work that I hope to do over the next year in it is putting certain things in place so I can have a far less interventionist approach. Because I think the magic happens when you just sort of leave it to be and you can go in and tweak a little bit and then and then see what happens. So that's been the most interesting thing. I suppose I probably have learned quite a lot, but I don't feel like I have. I still feel like a rookie. I think a lot of gardeners do, though. I've spoken to gardeners who have been doing it for decades and still feel like rookies. For sure. I think it's one of those things, the more you learn in horticulture, the more you realise how little you know. Yeah. 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 That's why we keep doing it, right? It's the curiosity of it Absolutely. All. And then you meet such enthusiastic 
passionate, knowledgeable people. Mm. And you were just blown away by what they have in their heads yeah. and how much they can contain. And the differences that they see, they're so good at observing. And, and yes. you just think, I didn't even see that. But that is that observation, isn't it? I mean, that's something that Pete Orloff also always says, is that the looking, and there are some people, as you say, who can look as a sort of superpower. But I do think it's something that needs to be cultivated to be a good gardener. And it's a wonderful thing to cultivate in a world when we are endlessly distracted. So we have decided that you're going to have a beautiful writing shed. Yes. And it's going to be in a sea of Edolf-like naturalistic planting. Yes, you just look out the window and, and see nothing but sort of wafting grasses, maybe a goldfinch, you know, that kind of thing. Yes, so it's good. Um, <laughs> Is there any kind of design element that you think, mm, I've seen that, I'd really love that in my fantasy garden? Yeah, design is a really interesting one, isn't it? Because there are so many beautiful, glossy, heavy coffee table tomes and um, obviously Gardens Illustrated is stuffed to brim with beautiful design endlessly. And it is the magazine that I always consider my my kitchen table magazine. Like I'll just flick over it over breakfast or over dinner and sort of lose myself in these things. But actually, it's, as someone who feels still like I'm learning this as I go, design is something that is really overwhelming to me. And as a result, the design effects that I'm drawn to are often the ones that I feel I can deploy. And there was something that I saw in Green, which is Ulla Maria's book, Really, really good book for small space gardening. Incredibly inspiring, very accessible. She really does run the whole range of what you can do in tiny spaces. The fact that my old balcony is in it is not got anything to do with it, I promise. <laughs> but it is there. I was very flattered to be included. And she had a design where she had grown Mind Your Own Business, which has an unpronounceable Latin name, but it's that sort of very small-leafed creeper. And she'd grown that between the cracks in the paving. It looked amazing. And actually, I do I do put a lot of my own business on my pots and stuff, and it sort of happily spreads around. And it, whatever, whatever the season, it's this really lush, spongy, tactile green. But I think as a sort of design solution for a lot of urban gardeners or people who are don't have that much time but want to inject some green quite easily, it's it's a good one. I know that people do it with erigerin as well or Mexican fleabane, which looks beautiful, but that actually takes a really long time to take. So I feel this is a, this is a slightly swifter, slightly more minimalist, more all-round solution. And it also reminds me a lot of how the moss gardens, uh, the Zen gardens of Japan, are looked after and designed and there's something incredibly calming and that notion of inviting the outdoor living world in. I love that just to see it just taking over a little bit. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. 
This episode is brought to you by Visit Myrtle Beach. You know what's better than getting away to a beach? Getting together at the beach. Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. They've got over 2,000 restaurants, live music playing all day and night, and endless attractions. This place was made for playing hard and beaching easy. Welcome to 60 Miles Where You Belong. The Beach, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Plan your trip at visitmyrtlebeach.com. So the greenness, that sort of pure, lovely, simple greenness, I'm quite surprised to hear you say that mm. because I know that you like your color. Yeah. Well, yes. This is, I mean, look, we're really getting quite psychological here, aren't we? This thing, <laughs> I think I just want so many things. I love color, but actually I'm a real sucker for a shade, shade garden. And the last balcony I had was very shady. And that taught me a lot about the value of greenery and the value of um, texture. And it's funny that we're talking about this now because I've just been writing about this for you, in fact, about evergreen containers and those really easy, low-maintenance, beautiful ferns that just keep going. And there is something very, very calming about green. And the more I garden, actually, the more green I fold in. You know, I'm, I will hit like out of out of the park on Instagram with everyone's beautiful dahlias. But for me, that they're a they're a treat rather than a constant, and I think actually there would be a part of my fantasy garden, maybe the patio or away from all the all the lush greenery, where it would be very green and mossy and and almost kind of like a secret ancient glade or something. I think that would be good. It's interesting. I see often there's this kind of evolution of a gardener from, you know, when they start out and they're probably attracted to, you know, the, the brightest colours, the biggest flowers, the most blousy petals. And then as time goes on and they kind of max out on that and then suddenly it starts to become a little bit more about form and texture. Yeah. And the next thing, you know, they're talking about how they really like species plants. <laughs> And about how they really just want it to be all green. So I think, you know, your evolution is continuing, almost complete. You're, almost, you're there at the end. When, when I start pitching you stuff about species plants, you can just hit the species plant <laughs> facts and be like, you've graduated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I look forward to that day. I think it's going to be a long way off, but you never know. And every once in a while, you know, something comes back like lupins, yes. which were very unpopular for quite yes. a while. And then suddenly Luciano Jubilee comes along and yep. puts them in his Chelsea garden. And now everyone's crazy about lupins. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Pampas grass. Yes, that's coming back. Oh, it's, it, I mean, it, it arrived back in the floristry world years ago, didn't it? Yeah. I do find it funny that everyone wanted it for their wedding. And it was like, you do know in the 70s, like that was associated with swingers. And I'm not, you know, you be as polyamorous as you want, but I'm just, are you aware of that when you're celebrating monogamy? I just putting that out there. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they are. Well, we'll never know. Yeah. So you have your writing shit yes. in your sea of grasses and a lovely path with some oh, moss yeah, or so mind your own business in the little cracks in between Perfect. the paving stones. Is there someone that you would like to share this garden with or have as your gardener, yeah. have as your designer, have there with you when you're gardening? Yeah, so I would, um, it's a funny thing letting someone into your garden to do that for you. And I I don't have anyone helping me out currently, although I have been coached. When I first got the garden, I was coached by Andrew Timothy O'Brien, who's a writer and a coach and a gardener. And he's a wonderfully permissive 
person, which was really useful for me. But there is someone who is a fantastic gardener, an excellent human who I met while I was interviewing for Why Women Grow. So Why Women Grow is the result of speaking with 45 women in their growing spaces and green spaces of their choice across the country and into Europe over quite an intense, like a sort of 18-month period. And Diana, whose full name is Diana Ross, and some listeners may have read her in Hortus a few decades ago. We are not speaking, of course, of the fabulous disco diva no, from the 1970s we are not. and 80s. But I would argue that this Diana is just as chic and has left a, led us fabulous a life. Yeah. But yes, no, not, not to confuse the two. And yes, yeah, so she is a gardening writer and a fantastic gardener, and she has a garden in South London that I'm fortunate enough to visit fairly often which I think is one is the most beautiful domestic garden I've ever seen. So the structure in it, the plants in it, but more than anything, the sense of how a garden changes when you devote a life to it. So she's gardened in it for more than four decades. And one of the things that she prepared in anticipation for our interview were photographs of the garden. And the first one I think might have been in Home and Garden or Gardens Illustrated or something in the late 80s. And it was this incredibly symmetrical, tight, beautiful, structured garden, very landscaped. And you can sort of see the skeleton of it now, but actually things have grown out of the cracks. And she said that over the course of her life, various things happened. And this reflected in the garden. She said she went into what she called a vandal stage and started like hiking up paving slabs and letting hellebores run riot. And and I think that you know, I, I very much enjoy her company and we do talk about gardening and she's a real expert. But the things that I would like to take from that are the, an obsession with compost, which I think is at the heart of any good garden, but also that freedom to change things and to garden responsibly to how you're feeling. And that actually you need a different garden for different times in your life. And that innate wisdom and the freedom to let go of control in the garden. I think control is one of the most hampering things we can have as gardeners because it just trusses us up and gardens are somewhere where we should feel most comfortable and relaxed. So we have the wonderful Diana Ross. Yes, we'd just be sitting in the corner with some wine, I think. Yes, but I think we need to make sure everybody goes straight out and and catches up on her essays that she wrote for horses. Yeah, they're fantastic. And, uh, I'm so grateful. I've got them all because of a another long story that involved me getting an entire back catalogue of Hortus posted to me from a mysterious benefactor over the course of quite a long period of time. But yes, I have them all and they are so funny and they're so witty and you can see her development as a writer through them, yeah. And there's a book, isn't there? There is. Uh, Gardeners. Exactly. So she interviewed long before I interviewed people about gardening. Diana was doing it first and she interviewed all manner of people about their gardens. And yeah, that exists as well. Yeah, so rush out everybody and get yeah. it because it's been a really <laughs> great read. So we have Diana and you mm-hmm. in the corner with some wine mm-hmm. uh, with your writing shed yes. and your seas of grasses and your beautiful uh, paving stones yes, surrounded by greenery. The, the mossy path, yeah, Absolutely. carefully. In this fantasy garden, what else would you have to have? Is there another feature or element? I think I would have a glass house. As opposed to a greenhouse. I think there's a distinction between the there two, is, actually. Isn't there? Yeah. <laughs> so a greenhouse is, for what in my mind, a proper growers, like people who sow vegetable seeds 
And they're those incredible places where you walk in and it just smells so good. It smells like earthy and tomatoes and and there's maybe sort of pots all over the floor and bits of rubbish. And my grandfather's greenhouse is very much like that. It was Victorian. It was an absolute death trap. And yet somehow, even into his late 90s, he was able to navigate it. And yeah, I mean, that to me is the ooh, greenhouse. But also, so, you know, the ones that you buy in plate glass and put up yourself. And the, my other grandfather had one of those. And, and that, the smell of that, you know, I think everyone has associations with that very heady smell. It would not be one of those because they exist for other other gardeners. And I am not a meticulous, edible, growing dedicate my summer to watering things kind of gardener. So mine would be a glass house, which is probably one of those very bougie, costs the same as like a normal house somewhere, beautiful spaces, which I would fill with pelargoniums Mm -hmm. and a big dining table and maybe some kind of elaborate light fixture that I could fill with candles. And, And I just want to Potter, potter around with the pelargoniums during by day, and then just fill it with all my favourite people and and eat and drink and chat and yes, the party glass house <laughs> is, <laughs> is what I'd want. Um, yeah, that sounds very nice. <laughs> I mean, it's a real luxury. Yeah, it's, it's yes, but you know, there's one at Houghton, uh, Houghton Hall in Norfolk, which I feel has that has that energy to it. But, you know, how lovely to be surrounded by pelargoniums. And also my pelargoniums frequently don't get overwintered because I don't really have anywhere to put them. They sort of, if they're lucky, get shoved in the porch where it's south-facing and quite warm. But, yes, I'd like to think that if I had an incredibly expensive glasshouse, then maybe my pelargoniums would survive. You can see yourself in your glasshouse. Yeah. You don't really look like yourself. You know, you're possibly dressed up like a 50s housewife right. with your apron on I and think the so. hair done and the heels, yes. you know, the little watering can. Yes, that kind of thing. Yes. There's a scene in The Crown, I think, when Olivia Coleman was the queen and she used one of those whores, I think it's the Riley Ripple, and she was using one of those. I think that sort of, yeah, exactly as you describe. Queen of your glasses. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and what would be your favourite pelargoniums? Do you have... Oh, I do have some actually. So um, this is where my Latin pronunciation is going to catch me out. Uh, oh, to- nobody knows it. No, no, it's a good who one. spoke Latin? Exactly. Are you listening to a podcast? Exactly. No, because it was two thousand years ago. Uh, yeah. So Tomo Tensum, the really soft, fluffy, minty one. Ah, oh, I love it. Big fat lily pad leaves. There is one that begins with an S that has tiny, delicate little purple flowers and very small, kind of almost pale green leaves. Love that one. I don't think you can beat Atara Roses for just a pure chintzy, smelling incredible, takes a cutting really well. But to be honest, I kind of love them all. And I'm thinking wistfully of the fact that because I didn't overwinter mine and then it snowed, all of them in my garden are now dead. And (laughs) I'm going to be begging cuttings off everyone in about three months time if this is going out then you know where to find me (laughs) (laughs) we have the glass house yeah and a writing shed it's getting pretty crowded in here it's i mean this fantasy gun's clearly enormous yeah obviously yeah so you know there's room for all but yes it is crowded (laughs) you've got lovely moss and mind your own business and grasses and perennials what else would you have to have uh i think 
it would have to be and I think like you know as you say we're getting crowded I think we're sort of getting there now but I'd want I'd want a swimming pond Stephanie please who wouldn't and in my head I've got a few swimming ponds in mind so there's obviously the gardens at Charleston have a large pond they've got a natural one but also Duncan Grant who lived there for the most of the time with Vanessa Bell had a series of ponds swimming ponds built in the walled gardens and there is the walled garden which if you've been to Charleston you will have seen it's very beautiful and you can kind of see where that pond is but then he also had this sort of little garden antechamber where there was an even smaller tinier pond which definitely has some real kind of sexy energy frankly <laughs> and it was like oh it's you know that's that's what that exists and you have sort of this notion of these very extravagant fun what happens here stays here the sneaking off to uh <clears throat> pond yeah exactly exactly the secret sexy pond i don't think i'd want a secret sexy pond i just want and like i think it's more like the the natural one and also i think the natural one i wouldn't have a boat on it i think that would just encourage people to interrupt my swimming time mm-hmm. but yes I've got in in the world's most cliche fashion I've got very into cold water swimming and I would like a swimming pond to do that in in all weathers maybe like a mini version of Hampstead Ladies Pond that would be fine something quite deep so uh, down in Somerset Joanna Kerr has the most beautiful Brownfields garden but she has a little pond for swimming in at the bottom of it. And because of her ecological approach that, you know, it's all cleansed by the plants around it. So, you know, I'd want to deploy that. So you'd want to have the planting in there as the filtration system. You know, like why not like hide among some reeds? That would be fun. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But no, I think somewhere where I could go for for a dip would be very nice and then you know you've got the whole thing haven't you so you could have a lovely party or a dinner in the greenhouse party glass house situation and then you could go for a dip either before or after and then you know if if it happens to be midsummer and the sun's coming up well then you just get that beautiful sunrise through the the grasses the peat lot of grasses yeah i can see it forming in your mind you can see it now can't you just the wistful expression over my face So we've talked a lot about the things you would have to have in your yeah. fantasy garden, but I'd like to know what's the thing that you would never even allow in the garden gate <laughs> that you would burn on the fire that you would the throw in the compost fire. Yeah, that you would never ever have in your garden. Yeah, I feel like this is actually I'm very blessed with relatives who have very good taste, so they would never never send me one of these for Christmas. But I have a real thing about garden ornaments. Even if those are very expensive, quite fancy sculptures, I think you've got... That is a rare one that works well, in my opinion, but uh, the ones that definitely never work well are ones with a face, Stephanie. Stuff with a face. Anything with a face on it. (laughs) (laughs) We're talking gnomes, we're talking fancy sculptures, anything with a face. Talking even... I don't care if you've spent thousands on it and it's made of bronze if it's got a face on it no we're talking facial expression like you know like eyes that kind of thing animal sculptures in gardens gnomes absolutely not ironic gnomes definitely not the trend for ironic gnomes honestly i'm just like it you know just by being there i i'd almost you had an authentic gnome there's quite a lot of um one of my favorite things to do in sort of garden spotting 
certainly where I live in London and South London, is look at normal domestic everyday front gardens. I I love them. I find them fascinating. And sometimes you'll see a really good collection of garden ornaments and it's so committed to that they basically get away with it. But the ironic gnome is sort of sneering at the gnome while having the gnome, and I don't think you can you can do that. So yeah, no, definitely no ironic gnomes, animals, all of that. Tut, no, no. sorry, not coming over the threshold. <laughs> Living animals are welcome to a certain extent. And then, if we had to ask you quick fire round, the last few things, yes. I'm going to give you two or three more things that you're allowed to squeeze into your fantasy garden. Okay. What would they be? You just couldn't live without in a garden. The company of good people. A garden is absolutely there to be shared and filled with all generations and and long afternoons and those sorts of people who when they turn up and you open the back door, you'll do a tour of the garden without even discussing it. Yeah, those, those people. So yeah, I mean, obviously, as you said, it is enormous, this garden. And so I would have um, a cutting a cutting bed. Because as discussed, you know, I, I increasingly going towards my species green life. <laughs> but um, I love having flowers for the house. And I, I love the work of florists and growers. But sometimes you just need to get a quick fix for yourself. And so being able to have some beds where I can just snip to my heart's content and put it on the kitchen table or maybe fill the party glass house with would be lovely. And Alice, your last one. So antique basically antique containers I think I'm I find pots really hard to find and I still think for any entrepreneurial types listening there is a huge gap in the market to make large well-made beautiful pots because as a former container gardener it's still really difficult to find them but yes we're talking beautiful iron stone urns gorgeous Victorian dolly tubs amazing former industrial wonders. Yeah, I want some really good, really good plant furniture, I'd say. We want the copper from Sissinghurst, but we want to be able to afford it. Yeah, but this is fantasy God. I mean, all of this is free, right? You're just giving this this away. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That was Alice Vincent, whose book and podcast Why Women Grow are out now. Thank you for listening to Talking Gardens, brought to you by the team behind Gardens Illustrated magazine. Find us on the newsstand and at gardensillustrated.com. See you next time.